I'd also like to remind myself and help us all remember that this is not a novel treatment discovery we're going to discuss. This treatment has been available to our earliest ancestors. We started as foragers, and mushrooms have always been available for us to pluck from fields and forests. Many First Nations and indigenous groups have maintained traditional uses of these medicines through familial lines and oral histories. Some groups are just reconnecting with their ancestral use. All of us gathered here are just beginning to reconsider how to reintroduce sacred medicines into this modern version of society we're sharing. And while there are certain anthropological and archaeological findings I can present to you, I'd suggest we accept that sacred plants and fungi have coexisted and co-evolved with humanity. I propose to consider this recent revival a remembering and a reconnection. We've been distanced from this remarkable therapy due to certain pre-industrial and certain post-industrial geopolitical trends. And I will begin a review starting in 1960s United States, since that is how I trained and then practiced psychedelic therapy uh, in the context of a government-sanctioned psilocybin research protocol. So please keep in mind I'm speaking from that perspective as a researcher and scientist. I'd also request that we honor the 13 participants who volunteered for this study I'll share with you. They are generous, courageous ancestors who volunteered not one, but two weekends among their last, in order for us to be able to consider psilocybin therapy in the broader context that is being formulated here in Oregon. In 2001, when I was a medical intern at Harvey UCLA, I attended a seminar on harm reduction. And uh, it was about, you know, substance abuse, about a variety of substances, primarily methamphetamine, which was very rampant in Southern California at the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, as an intern at that time, you don't really get a lot of sleep, you know, working in the hospital, et cetera. So you're usually kind of dazing off in these uh, lectures, you know, don't want to get in trouble with your professor. But as I was dozing off, hearing about methamphetamine and maybe about GHB or some other kind of club drugs, I suddenly heard, however, there is therapeutic potential of MDMA. So I, so I perked up, and I met this guy named Charlie Grobe, who had just finished a study using MDMA uh, treating terminal anxiety associated with cancer. So after that meeting, I volunteered myself to assist him on his next study. So in 2002, he found me and asked me to be his co-therapist, uh, colleague, and uh, co-investigator for a study, because at that time, there were very few physicians who would even consider this. You know, uh, the state of the war on drugs had really reached its full culmination where literally uh, psychiatry professors, medical doctors were talking about how dangerous the, these, these drugs were. So they would include psilocybin and LSD in the same discussion as a discussion of methamphetamine. They would show, you know, like a brain on methamphetamine and say, hey, all these drugs are bad for you. So I knew, just because I knew, that those, this was kind of bogus. So when I finally found a teacher who was kind of open to these alternative treatments, I volunteered to work for him. So that led me to volunteering on that study for uh, five more years as a resident fellow. And then I worked on it for two more years when I was a professor up at UCSF. I flew down on my own time and, and participated in that study. So the reason I want to teach all of you all, because you seem like a pretty open audience, about what's called the psychedelic method is not because I really believe in this, but this is how the rationale for all these studies, and I believe Measure 109, is, is, is rolling out. So people have these questions. Why is it at a, at a, in a certain setting? Why is there a facilitator? Why do we have to wear eye shades? Why is there music? This is all modeled off 1960s studies that were very, very successful for treating a variety of ailments. Okay, so. 
There was no negative studies back in that time. What uh, psychiatrists and the FDA said in the 90s and 2000s uh, was that those studies don't meet today's criteria. So really it was this policy decision by the federal government to just avoid any consideration of this treatment. There never has really been any bad outcomes. So I just want everyone to know that, okay? So um, the reason I think why uh, doctors 60 years ago became open to psychedelics, there was a movement from these post-Freudian ideas of uh, dualistic thinking. I've always been very open to this because I'm, I was raised non-dualistic. My dad's from India, my mom's been a lifetime yoga practitioner. I've been meditating since I was, you know, a, a baby. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I want to remind everybody, though I'm probably speaking to people who know this, one challenge to the Western model of medicine for integrating psychedelics is it defies this pharmacological reductionistic uh, categorization of, uh, of, of, of things, right? So just like Dr. Euling mentioned, yeah, if you look at this categorization of life between plant, fungus, and animal, we're all different. But really, it's just a categorization that makes that different. Actually, we're all kind of coming from the same earth. Um, and the one thing I think why it's important to have facilitation with this is um, when people enter into altered state of consciousness, they have to understand, or the people facilitating that, that we're not just looking at a drug effect. We are looking at understanding what the role is, and we're really using these as rite of passages, trying to trigger a paradigm, uh, paradigm shift in somebody so they can have a lasting growth experience. And what's so beneficial to me as a psychiatrist about considering uh, psychedelic treatments or other treatments such as yoga, tai chi, you know, life changes, these can make lifelong impacts on people so they're not dependent on some sort of daily, weekly uh, routine of getting a, a pharmacological medicine. So that's kind of my personal background on it. Um, two concepts that I think probably most people are, are very familiar with are set and setting. Now the set uh, in this kind of a paradigm developed by Tim Leary and some other uh, researchers, uh, you know, there's a guy named Richard uh, Albert, who's turned out to be Romdahl, so it's also part of this study, and also uh, Ralph Metzer. Set is kind of what's the internal um, reality of an individual going into a psychedelic experience. So it's, it's influenced by the immediate uh, things that are going on in their life, like their mood, like what's happened, what's going on at work, but it's really informed more deeply about their whole life experience, and even the epigenetics, what's happened in their whole life history, you know, almost at an ancestral level. So set is one way we can work with somebody going into a psychedelic experience to make it therapeutic, okay? So the most common way we address set in our world is things like psychotherapy, coaching, meditation, yoga. So we all kind of work on ourselves as our set. We have different words for it. Setting is actually the physical location uh, where a psychedelic experience, uh, therapeutic experience is going to uh, take place. But it's also strongly influenced by, um, I'll use the word facilitator, because that's the word that's going on around in Oregon. So when we did our study, we always had three sitters or facilitators. So it was myself, Dr. Grobe, and a research coordinator. And at that time, there was this uh, strong idea we should also balance gender. So we always made sure we had a female in the room. Um, we also had a team of 12 nursing staff who were in and out of there at different times that everyone was familiar with. So there was never more, less than two people bedside uh, with all our participants, just to make sure we really did our best to ensure a very, very therapeutic setting. So I'll, I'll leave that at that at there for now. Um, a lot of this research, if you're going back to psychological theories about it, was developed by a, um, 
a, a minister, a psychiatrist, and a psychologist named Walter Pankey. So he was involved in a very famous uh, experiment uh, while he was at Harvard Divinity School and also getting his PhD, where they invited a group of Harvard Divinity students to consume psilocybin while listening to the uh, Good Friday Mass. And this study, which he writes about in this really kind of interesting um, paper, really is the uh, inspiration for the Roland Griffith studies that were done you know, now about 12, 15 years ago. So people are familiar with studies they did about will psilocybin catalyze a mystical experience? And um, it will, you know, as it was shown in the 1960s, and it still does um, today. He was looking, uh, wanted to look broader, so he categorized um, five potential types of experiences that can be triggered uh, by uh, a psychedelic. This right here is a broader look, so I'm not talking about psilocybin specifically here. It is very, very rare to have a psychotic or a bad trip on psilocybin. However, at the time of his review, there was a lot of research done with LSD, PCP, and DMT. And LSD and PCP in a non, and not the most ideal setting, it's quite common to have pretty intense anxiety uh, effects. It's pretty well documented, and I, I, I would agree with that. So I'm going to tell you briefly about these kind of five classes of experiences, uh, just since we're doing the whole psychological overview. And this is very important, these two kind of highlights. All these things can kind of overlap, right? We're categorizing an experience. So for example, if you drop into India for the first time right into a spice market, that's going to be a different experience versus cruising in and chilling at a hotel for three days before visiting the spice market, right? So you can see how set and setting works. Uh, and it's not dose related because um, it's just not. Um, so the, the, I always bring this up when I talk about psychedelics and any kind of educational experience, and maybe I don't need to do it here in Oregon. This bad trip, you know, kind of meme or cultural phenomenon has been very exaggerated in today's culture. You know, I'm glad that it's finally beginning to kind of subside. I don't know if any, any uh, Stranger Things fans out there? And do you guys remember that scene in like the most recent episode where two of the uh, main characters are like tortured and they're given a psychedelic? But what happens? They end up having a really good time, right? So the, the reality is um, Western medicine is, has always looked for what are called uh, disease models. You know, so they'll like infect mammals or create genetic clones with problems. So there was a, a period of time in the 50s where psychology and psychiatry researchers would give volunteers unknowingly LSD trying to trigger psychotic episodes in order to study schizophrenia. Now. It was really bad for all those folks. However, I think less than one in 10 actually even had a bad trip, even had that experience. You know, and it is not consistent with what schizophrenia is. Schizophrenia is a insidious, slowly developing, lifelong change in the frontal lobe. This is a drug-induced psychosis at its worst, and it's only gonna last you know, 12, 24 hours. Uh, to, you know. So again, um, it's important for any kind of sitter to understand the potential of a, like an acute anxiety attack so they know when to intervene with kind of more supportive care. And I'm not talking about medicines or anything like that. When someone gets into this type of state, you really want to maybe take them out of the voyage a little bit and help ground them and bring them back to a reality where they um, can feel safe. Because we're not trying to cause any kind of trauma for folks, right? So, but again, this is very uh, highly exaggerated, I think, um, and essentially absent with uh, psilocybin. You know, to prepare for this, I reviewed an audio of a Grand Rounds I did at UCSF, and there was a faculty member there when he was younger who had sat for bad trips back in the 60s. 
And he commented that he never, ever sat for anybody for psilocybin. All the trips he sat for for other drugs, primarily LSD. So again, psilocybin, I think, is a very good choice by Oregon. And I'm not involved with Measure 109. I've taken my time to really take a look at it, but I think it's very, very thoughtful that they're picking psilocybin among all the different psychedelics that are available. It's a very safe and reasonable choice. And there's probably like 10,000 patients who are treated with it in the 50s and 60s successfully for a variety of illnesses. So, you know, Jeff mentioned tobacco and alcohol. Um, this gentleman here mentioned a trial for uh, bipolar 2 for psilocybin. I know a, a psychiatrist who did a trial for OC, OCD. So slowly as there's more support of this for medical research and funding and social acceptance, we're basically just repeating all these studies that have already been done in the 50s and 60s. And as I pointed out at the beginning and Jesse pointed out very nicely with her, her timeline, we've been using these for millennium to help people with everything. Okay, so. Um, that's the way I think about that. Um, you know, just really quick, Stan Groff is a really important researcher uh, in this field. If anyone wants to be a sitter or is really curious about that, a lot of people came up to me after my Mushroom Club talk. This could be the one book to read. Uh, it's very, very helpful in terms of giving you a, a, a structural framework. Even though it's not about LSD, he is a very, very deep thinker, probably treated more people with um, psychedelics during the 50s and 60s than anybody. Um, and he's a very thoughtful person. Um, this other book is written by a religious scholar, Houston Smith, um, and I'm bringing this up to remind myself that many of the deeper thinkers about psychedelics in the 50s or 60s really thought that going through that shadow material, some of the more anxiety-provoking material in the course of session, would help lead uh, to that deep level of growth. So it's really important for a facilitator to have some sort of ability to help someone navigate through some challenging spaces. You know, it's not just sitting there. If everything goes well, you just sit there. But again, there's going to be, you know, one in ten, one in a hundred people who are going to, who are going to get into some difficult material. So that's really when the facilitator earns their keep, right? Is actually providing some therapeutic benefit to somebody in an altered state of reality while they're processing something that is important to reintegrate when they come back. So that's a lot. That's too much for me to get into here. Okay. Um, Houston Smith, just kind of for fun, he actually participated in the Good Friday experiment. <laughs> and so did Walter Pankey, even though he wrote the paper, which is kind of interesting. So that's kind of one of these reasons why these papers don't meet today's standards, right? So I did, couldn't sit for my own psilocybin paper, unfortunately, right? So, so uh, another area is psychodynamic. This was more uh, commonly pursued in Europe, which was still holding on to this Freudian concept. They didn't have this cultural revolution in the 60s where we all said, hey, why should we sit on a chair and tell our stories to some older person who's then going to try to fit us back into society, right? So they were using low dose, this might be similar to microdosing, uh, doses of psilocybin and other psychedelics in the context of psychotherapy. But remember, um, Freudian psychotherapy is sitting with an analyst 60 to 75 minutes, five days a week. Okay, so it's really kind of a strange uh, Thing. But the idea, which I think is relevant to kind of microdosing or moderate dose psychedelic use therapeutically is people become a little bit more open, can have a slight perspective change without going so deep. So you might be able to revisit a trauma, some sort of over-attachment to some negative um, psychological material from a novel perspective. And then with a the helpful therapist, they can help you kind of shed that, right? So it's not forgetting, it's letting go of the negative feelings of attachment to something that's uh, promoting some sort of uh, negative psychological uh, process. And cognitive is interesting. There's been a lot of like papers now since I made this slide, you know, 15 years ago. 
about uh, researchers, artists using psychedelics to kind of get some inspiration about a specific key um, area where they might have a blockage, right? They just can't grok it. So to give yourself a broader perspective. And there was a very famous scientist named Kerry Mullis. I think he acknowledged this in the 80s, and it really impacted his career. He's the guy who was so brilliant, he invented PCR, which basically is involved in all DNA research, just to solve a question he had. So, um, yeah. Um, and the aesthetic experience, I think, is this area where a lot of our culture is somewhat accepted. You know, it's kind of like enjoying uh, sensory modalities, et cetera. I personally feel this really ties into the next experience because if we can see beauty and in the interconnectedness of things, particularly in patterns, nature, or even architecture, it opens us up, <coughs> us up to more connectivity. Uh, but the reality is this, is this was the other thing besides the bad trip that's been overplayed in Western media, right, that you're tripping out for a good time. And there's this word that's popular called psychonaut, you know, et cetera. So. So the mystical experience is what really drew me into Dr. Grobe's talking about this type of psychological theory versus all these other psychological theories um, I've learned. You know, and I trained for six years after medical school, so I pretty much trained in every psychological theory. Um, and what I liked about it, it didn't try to explain the mystical experience as something out of regular life. The idea in a transpersonal level of psychology or you know, ancient kind of spiritualities and cosmology, the mystical or the non-ordinary level of consciousness is just something we, we deal with. So the mystical experience, um, Pankey, since he was also a religious scholar, he felt that the mystical experience, and that's kind of what he was looking at, that Good Friday ex experience, was the same kind of ex transcendent or cosmic experience that occurs with people in deep ecstatic states. And that can be from religion, like a whirling dervish, that could be from meditation, it could be from dance. It could be that feeling of welcoming a child into the world. It could be that feeling of you know, attaining some sort of spiritual goal, some sort of artistic experience. So this is why I was drawn to this. You know, um, I did a lot of other strange things in residency. I did a drumming circle with, with schizophrenic patients. <laughs> I got really into meditation. And, you know, so I was always looking for a non kind of traditional uh, cycle farm thing. And so this was really a great opportunity uh, for me. So I'd invite everybody, if you guys are comfortable, maybe close your eyes for a second, uh, feel your, the back of your legs in the chair, have your feet firmly rooted on the floor, and just kind of take a breath and kind of drop it through your head. And I would invite you, if you feel comfortable, if you feel my voice is calming, and I think we have a really, really beautiful group of people here, why don't you try to visualize in your heart or your mind's eye, whichever of those metaphors works best for you, a, a, a mystical experience, a cosmic experience, a transcendental experience. And what, with your eyes closed, I'm going to read you this next slide, which is what a very heady Harvard psychiatrist, psychologist, and divinity PhD, I'm not sure what that's called, described. That's what he's talking about, common to a psychedelic experience and a religious experience. So one, a sense of unity of oneness. Two, transcendence of time and space. Three, deeply felt positive mood. Four, sense of sacredness. Five, noetic quality. Six, paradoxicality. Seven, ineffability. Eight, transiency, and nine, 
after this experience, we feel a persisting positive change in our attitudes and behavior. So take a moment to, you know, reaware yourself of the floor with your feet, back of your legs in the chair, and just open your eyes and take a couple of breaths. So that is what drew me into pursuing psychedelic research, and I think that's what really hooked those psychiatrists who really were way ahead of their time in the 50s and 60s, okay? So this whole style of psychological formulation is what's called the psychedelic method, according to these writers. This is a really, really beautiful book written by Stan Groff, who I mentioned before, also written by Joan Halifax. They were co-therapists for a lot of um, people who had terminal cancer. And what's so interesting, the foreword is done by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a physician who studied end of life, who came up with the stages of grief. This is taught to, her name is taught to every single first medical, first year medical student in the United States. Like we are taking tests about her. No one's ever mentioned Stan Groff to me until I saw Charlie in that lecture. So it, he was that profound. His work influenced like the expert on end of life. And what he did, he treated, along with Joan Halifax, several thousand patients with end stage cancer. So he clued in very early on the research that psychedelics are very helpful for rite of passage. And he was very interested in the transition at the end. And there's many mystical traditions that you, we all are probably aware of where we look at life as one experience and then there's another transition or before. Um, so I brought this up as this is what inspired our study, which I'll tell you about in a minute, okay? And inspired my teacher who was inspired by this. So the idea is that if physicians, community, facilitator, shaman, whoever, can help someone have a mystical experience during a difficult transition, such as the end of life, we can provide a dramatic impact in decreasing the fear, anxiety, and depression around that situation. Okay, so this is not talking about some disorder. I'm talking about the big transition, okay? And um, they wrote more in this term religious. I would use more spiritual or mystical, but again, this is language of the 50s and 60s and in Western America, right? That's why I was kind of doing that framework. They felt that if someone had a mystical experience with a therapeutic intention, it could lead to life lasting therapeutic effect. So that, to me, is kind of what's motivating, um, you know, Measure 109 in terms of the end of life uh, kind of work. Um, this is a little bit about ideal conditions. I think you guys get most of this. Um, this gentleman, Myron Stolaroff, he did, uh, he ran a research lab in Palo Alto for about 20 years before it became illegal. And he worked with a lot of uh, underground therapists and wrote a really interesting book uh, called The Secret Chief which is about a therapist who provided help for a lot of people, often at the end of life. He also later wrote, wrote a book called The Secret Chief Revealed, so you can find all that out if you like. But it's a, it would be a good book for a sitter to read. So, uh, you know, Mr. I, got, I was lucky to meet him and some of these other folks around the turn of the century because there was, a, there was a woman in Venice Beach who hosted what was called the Psychedelic Salon, and I was invited to some of these meetings because I was involved in that, and he would regularly supervise us and teach us. Um, um, so the set, he felt, was the most important uh, in terms of impacting. And that's why I said, you know, if someone really wants to get the best benefit of a psychedelic experience, it would be really important to, you know, to work on your set, right? Do some psychotherapy, do some yoga, whatever it is. Really do a lot of work before. The medicine is there, but we have to still do the work, right? Um, and he felt people who are decent, honest, 
you know, kind of courageous, um, not disgenuine, uh, disgenuine, he would use that word a lot when I chat with him, would have the best results in terms of uh, really, really, you know, skyrocketing their uh, authenticity, right? That's what we're looking for. And in terms of setting, he felt the facilitator was the most important person. And, you know, I'm most comfortable thinking about facilitation as a group of two or three, okay? So, and the idea is you want someone who's very therapeutic, supportive, reassuring, who really is only there for the other person's uh, benefit. I mean, it really, what it really comes down to, you know, I don't know about a degree or this or that, because there's plenty of people without degrees who are excellent healers. I know people like this. But it's really about someone who's a caregiver, right? It needs to be a very, very caring person who's a facilitator. You know, this isn't, hey, you know, psilocybin's back in vogue, I'm going to go become the facilitator in the year. That would concern me. But anyone who's a really good caregiver who wants to get into this, that to me is the ideal facilitator, okay? Uh, we don't need to know all these, like, fancy psychological theories, um, but this is kind of how we got here as a Western culture. This is how we're reconvincing, um, you know, our, uh, you know, the, the, the people setting up our society that this is okay. We have to still use this kind of Western psychological, scientific, mycological data point and expertise to kind of reconvince ourselves that it's okay just to become natural and listen to like the God within. It's kind of, it's a very interesting circle, right? And he was big about a very safe and beautiful nourishing environment. Beautiful flowers, they bring in fresh fruit, you know, live harp. I mean, the stuff this guy was into is just like incredible. You know, it's like really make it, you know, that kind of experience. And, you know, perhaps in some sort of ideal utopian society, Everyone would have this experience, you know, when they come of age, 18 or 20, right? Everyone would have this experience at their wedding. Everyone would have this experience as they're, you know, uh, readying themselves to transition out of this, you know, kind of human uh, predicament. <laughs> so um, I'm kind of talking about the facilitator, you know. Um, the facilitator, you know, this is more the basics of the study. We were there just to make sure anything that that person had to do that they could not delegate to somebody else were there for, Okay. Um, and the music, uh, copying these methods uh, developed by Myron Stoloroff, Stan, Stan Groff, Walter Pankey, was to allow people to really go within during the actual, uh, the peak intoxication, you know, that four to six hours of psilocybin. And uh, what's so interesting, because I have a bunch of my friends from the, uh, the radio crew, is I was the musical curator for all these, this study. <laughs> so this really got me into, uh, into music for a while. Um, so, and you know, we can, we'll, talk, we'll have to talk about that some other times. But the reality is a facilitator is putting their needs uh, behind. You, hopefully you have a team, so if anything comes up for yourself, either like in that moment or kind of emotionally, there's other people who can balance that out. And I know when I invite, you know, Jeff and Jesse here to talk, I feel much more comfortable talking about something as profound and, you know, potentially grandiose as this. I mean, these guys set me up so well, right? We work so well together. So we are facilitating sharing this knowledge with you. That's why I don't, I don't want to talk about this by myself, right? Um, um, so the biggest things we ever had to do was some gentle redirection. We'd help people with water. And sometimes someone would have to get up to the bathroom, right? Oh, and this is a quote by one of our participants who did not really enjoy, you know, kind of like the superficial content of the style from our music, but they felt that it really actually was quite helpful. There really is a quite a lot of intention going into a playlist. And I had actually prepared a two-hour playlist for this event, but since it's so difficult to hear, we're not going to do that. I'm going to rebroadcast that tonight, six to eight at KPOB.
So it'll be on 88.9 FM. Yeah, that'll be fun. So um, I kind of talked about this a little bit. I think um, I'm not really that concerned about side effects. It is important to understand kind of what the potential side effects are because as more and more people participate in psilocybin, there will be some people who can't tolerate it because of nausea. Do you see what I mean? They'll throw up. So in that instance, we don't say, hey, let's go back deeper within, stick with it. We'll stop the episode, help them get through it, right? And if there's a certain level of dizziness or lightheartedness, you might have to intervene. I think, I'm not sure if there's a lot of people at the Horizons event a couple weeks ago. I think it was Dr. Anderson from UCSF made a really good point. The facilitator has to have enough knowledge about medicine to recognize that someone is going into medical distress during a session. And I don't feel psilocybin would cause that, but as particularly for dealing with people who have multiple medical concerns, who are medically frail, you've got to be able to recognize when someone needs an intervention for a stroke or someone is having some sort of heart failure, you know, or someone's having a seizure. So if we're treating everybody in the community about this, there has to be that recognition, just like a lifeguard at a pool responds not just to drowning, right? So there is some reality testing we have to keep in place when we are taking somebody to an altered state of consciousness of four to six hours. That said, I think we, you know, the state is picking the right substance. And again, I don't believe the facilitator has to have used any substance. You know, different people have opinions about that. I do not believe that myself. Um, so the study, um, this was a clinical trial, so this is a research protocol. You know, psilocybin is still an experimental medicine, according to the FDA. It is still Schedule One. What I have heard, like I think, I can't remember which of my colleagues mentioned, it's going to be rescheduled probably by 2024. It sounds like MDMA is 2023. There's different topics about this. Um, fortunately, there's been tremendous results treating PTSD, particularly with um, uh, military veterans. So that is really helping the federal government uh, reconsider, uh, reconsider its scheduling. That's not going to affect Oregon, by the way. Um, and if you guys are curious about my own personal preference about this, I'm a fan of decriminalization of any plant or medicine. Okay, so I'm just kind of giving you the state from what I hear. Yeah. So for this study, because it was what's called a feasibility study, we had to show the government that it was feasible to use this. And that means that we can do it without causing harm. So because of that, we were given permission to treat people with terminal cancer, right? And they were not allowed to have heart disease, couldn't have any history of major mental illness. That means they never could have been depressed. And they could not have any nerve involvement of their cancer. So you can imagine it was very difficult to recruit for this study because we had to find people who were terminally ill with cancer who were totally medically stable. <laughs> and that's why this took six years to do, okay? Yeah, after we showed, I think it's been a while, maybe four or five or six volunteers, we showed that there wasn't elevated blood pressure. We were allowed to treat people with treated cardiac disease. And we were allowed to get the FDA to allow us to redefine terminal cancer as unlikely to survive more than 12 months. Because if anyone out there has loved ones with cancer or is struggling with themselves, it is really vague, right? You know, what's going on, you know? So this really allowed us to, to treat people with metastatic cancer not involving the brain. And frankly, I don't think we would invite people involving the brain because we're doing kind of a psychological study. So how, you know, it's just, yeah. So, um, and the age range was 18 to 70. I um, was involved in the recruitment and the consenting of almost every participant. And I'll share, there was, you know, many people who 
uh, didn't make it into the study who wanted to volunteer because it takes just the process of finding that group of people, right? So it was, it was pretty intense. Um, the target measure we were looking at is existential anxiety associated with advanced cancer. That is why the FDA would not allow us to treat people who already had anxiety. You know, so we got through that. And um, it was double blind, meaning that um, we, the administrators of this new novel intervention, didn't know at each session whether we were giving them psilocybin or not. Does that make sense? So both that's the double blind. And placebo-controlled means we're actually giving an active placebo, right? So there's something that may have some slight physiological effect just to make sure we're not cheating, right? And that was niacin, which is not a, a very effective placebo. It's pretty obvious if someone's on niacin versus psilocybin. <laughs> niacin theoretically you know, really satisfied you know, the overcognitive people because niacin can cause a, a slight autonomic arousal. And that's just a fancy word for feeling a little dizzy, your blood pressure going up, and maybe having um, an increased pulse, but not really. Um, and the dose we gave was 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. This is, we should talk about this some other time. It's very interesting. Um, there was a back and forth at the FDA since this was the safety study. This is lower than subsequent studies that have occurred. And again, this got approved in 2002. Wow. Um, so we're looking, I'm talking 20 years ago. Um, and we started treating people in 2004. So preparation, you know, I mentioned like working on set. We did a lot of pretreatment meetings with, uh, with volunteers. Uh, we met with them, tried to discuss, discuss their intention, explain to them that this is, you know, I didn't really like using the word novel, but this is a different type of uh, treatment than you typically would seek out from a psychiatrist at the time. And um, we really wanted to get to know their families and really set it up so they felt quite comfortable with us as facilitators. Now, I did all these intake evals as a psychiatrist. Our research coordinator, they were not therapists, but essentially they were. So um, it was kind of like organized slightly separately, but basically those three of us integrating these people into this protocol, sitting with them during the sessions, you know, both the placebo session and the um, active session, and then doing some integration afterwards. And several of the volunteers were in the local Los Angeles area, so I got to know some of these people really well, and we did lots of integrative sessions, you know. Um, um, I think that's covered. So the setting, you know, this looks pretty harsh, but I'm just going to show you what it is. This is a, a, a county hospital in Torrance um, that's affiliated with UCLA. So it's staffed by UCLA medical students, interns, residents, fellows, faculty, but it's a county hospital. It's a pretty impoverished um, unit. The other challenge was, more than 50% of the population we serve at UCLA were Spanish speakers. And I was on a Spanish-speaking team. I only treated Spanish speakers, like my entire uh, residency and fellowship. But we weren't allowed to treat them because Dr. Grobe and the research coordinator don't speak Spanish. You know, So that made it even harder to you know, recruit. But I I'm bringing that up because I think there are some potential issues with access you know, with the Measure 109. So I think it's really important this be available, these treatments in all languages, you know, particularly, um, I mean, that's very important to me personally. So anyhow, this was a little bit different at, at Harbor. It was on the second, it took, occupied half of the second floor. It had like a double locked door just to get there because it was kind of like farmed out at what's called the GCRC. So it's a research unit that receives funding from the federal government and research labs and UCLA to do trials. And um, a couple years before um, this study, 
this particular room had been adapted with even more sound insulation and another double door and a private bathroom to use for a sleep study. So it was a very isolated, insulated, you know, you felt outside that environment. That said, there was at least one or two potential volunteers who didn't want to volunteer once they saw the outside of the hospital. And like, you know, I'm meeting with them in a county clinic to talk about this. Like my office is, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a very kind of slick place. Um, the nursing staff got very involved. They were very into it, you know. Sometimes there'd be no other units, I mean, no other patients in the unit. It was a six-bed a six-bed research unit. So most of the time we had the whole floor to ourselves. And then, you know, this is actually how it was set up by our first research corner at the very first setting, um, very first sitting. So just trying to like, you know, de-medicalize it a little bit. I guess this is like the style in 2003 or whatever. But people would bring in a lot of personal photographs, pictures of their dog. You know, we're trying to make it a little bit more uh, homey, you know, the subsequent studies after this one, since we did the safety study, were done in kind of more like living room settings. The reason we had to do this was at any time I could call a code and I could administer any type of uh, medical intervention at any moment, right? Because we had two physicians, you know, I could do all that stuff, and we have a team of nurses right there. This is a fully codable unit, and that's required to do any kind of experimental uh, medication with somebody, okay? I'm also sharing this with you because I want to show you how courageous and generous the 13 volunteers were for this study. I mean, these are really amazing people. That's why we are talking about this. I mean, it's because of this feasibility study. So I really admire them all a lot. Um, so this is just funny because this is back in the days. You guys remember, um, uh, was it iTunes back in the day? So I would bring in my laptop or an iPad. And again, we would move it around depending, you know, kind of on the mood or the ships, you know, trying to get someone deep. We want to put some kind of shadow work, kind of some challenging material to kind of shake things up. And Jen will pull them out in kind of a nice, uh, gentle kind of playlist. So I'd be doing these four to six hour playlists. So like I said, this is going to be a pretty fun, I try to do this two hour one. It's like a little touch of dark. It's more very positive, merge with the light and get ready to go play in the fields. That's this playlist I'll play <laughs> kind of tonight. Um, we use noise canceling, you know, kind of headphones. And anytime, unless somebody have to go to the bathroom, we always encourage them to go back within. Listen to music, listen to your heart. You know, we want them to journey. And we would uh, integrate and discuss um, any kind of specific material uh, later. Yeah, so I talked about integration. And then this is, how are we doing on time? I guess I lost my co-presenter. I think they need the room in about five minutes. Oh, five minutes? Okay. So this is the paper we published. You know, I mentioned Charlie. Alicia Danforth was our second research coordinator. She's actually, a, I think, a PsyD. She's a psychedelic therapist. She's done a lot of research. And then Mary C. Haggerty is a retired RN who was our, our study coordinator. So let me, uh, maybe I'll just run through these quotes. We only have five minutes. You guys want to see some testimonials? You guys want to ask me some questions for five minutes? It'll, it'll scroll through the testimonials over three minutes. Should I take some questions? And then if you want to uh, have any questions, we have pencils we can pass out with direct questions what on your card. We need to share the room with score prints coming oh, up we gotta in a go. moment. So we're going to regather the amphitheater right next door, uh -oh. get some fresh air, get some sunlight, get out of the dark for a while, and then Sorry. just question and answers over in that area. Uh -oh. We prefer to use the written questions so we can kind of sort through and taking everybody's time to the fair is going to be over in about 20 minutes anyway. So if you need a pencil, as you well, thanks, guys. Sorry, it took Thank too long. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay, I'll go.
Yeah. It's way too much information, isn't it? It's for a 90 minute talk. Fascinating, though. Yeah. Oh, we should do like a 12 week seminar. <laughs> I mean, this is like more like a test. Oh, no, yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Thank you. No. It's a lot. I guess so much. Hey, thanks, man. How are you I have no idea. I, so we never did that. I'm just the old studies. Oh, okay. They're like they're like there's you can get them all. But I don't remember like I read a like so long ago like if they've been like do you see what I mean? Like some of these studies would be like PCP and ISD and DMT and those group. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. and there's all this like, people just like giving stuff and like telling what's going on. Like, oh, really? We're doing guinea pigs. Surprise. Yeah. No, that's no, like legit. So, there's papers written about it. Yeah, a friend of mine. Does it work for pain? Does it take away the headache? A friend of mine actually did a really good research. I remember where it is. Yeah, basically the same study. Yeah, I think it was.